0: I'm Martin Willis, your host, and we have a great show this evening. Actually, we have two different shows going on. Uh, The first hour is going to be with Adam Frank. He's an astrophysicist. He's got a book that uh, came out recently called The Little Book of Aliens. We're going to be talking about his research um, in looking for alien life. Uh, Fascinating guy. Just had a quick conversation with him. Real excited to talk to him this evening. So if you are watching this on YouTube and you want to jump over to the next stream at eight o'clock PM Eastern, and that's with Daniel Sheehan, the attorney, we're going to be talking about the UAP uh, Disclosure Act that is in jeopardy right now. And so just make sure you jump over to that stream. If you're listening to KGRA radio, then you will hear hear both shows back to back um, on this. So our our blog this week by Charles Lear is uh, a 1973 UFO and occupant report from Baja Blanca, Argentina. Uh, A lot of things seem to happen in 1973, it's one of those years. A very well uh, researched uh, blog by Charles Lear. And I wanna thank everyone uh, who uh, helps out with the show and the people behind the scenes as well as uh, all you who are watching and listening, and we are ready to bring in our guest, Adam. Welcome, Adam. Hello.
1: Hey, Martin, how are you doing?
0: Yeah, I love uh, love the background. It's a very familiar background to me. Uh, Very much. Yeah, this Star Trek, I love it. So, yeah, the so old school, I I wanna, old school, the original bridge. Old school. I love the old school. The old school is what I remember, the William Shatner years, you know, and the, I think it was only three or four seasons. I can't remember three seasons. How there was, were three
1: seasons which were in infinite replay. So I, I you know, was a kid. No, in the that's 70s, right. And and so yeah. it would just be like there were two channels that uh, independent channels in the New York City area that played, I think it was channel five and channel 11, one at four o'clock and one at seven o'clock and just every day. So there were like two opportunities to watch. (laughs) So I've watched them every episode I've seen 30 or 40 times, you know?
0: Yeah. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yes. I I watched when they came out and, and my producer Donna was uh, wrote a letter because at the season two, they were going to cancel it. And she was one of these people. It was a, a letter right. uh, writing campaign that saved it and made it go another season. Which is, That's uh, amazing. That, that was fun. like an early
1: example of the fan support, you know, which is now quite common happens with shows.
0: Yes. Yes. So I guess uh, I want to, uh, we only have an hour, unfortunately, because I feel I can talk with someone like you forever, you know, uh, but first of all, just so people get to know you a little bit, can you talk a little bit about your background and what, you know, fascinated you to get into the line of uh, the career that you are in as an astrophysicist and professor and all that.
1: Yeah, so um, I've been interested in astronomy since I was like five years old. I grew up in Jersey, right across from the city, uh, New York City. Um, and uh, my dad was a uh, writer, and he had um, he was really interested in science fiction. And there was uh, he had his in his library. There was a shelf that had lots of. 1960s pulp science fiction science magazines on them. And it was the cover of those magazines. I remember looking at them when I was like five and, you know, guys in space suits, and rocket ships and, and aliens, bug eyed monsters. And that was it for me. That was that's got me started. Being, you know, I knew I wanted to be an astronomer like at five years old. And then, you know, later on, my dad would take me to the Hayden planetarium. I also my, you know, my mom got me a telescope, um, So I just was, I was into it. I always knew this was what I wanted to do. And then, you know, when I, as I started to get older in my teen years, I could start reading Carl Sagan. I started doing, you know, exploring mathematics and physics and fell in love with it, the actual doing of it. Um, And that's been it. And so I've always, you know, I've been an astrophysicist for 30 years, professional astrophysicist professor for 30 years. And, you know, I wrote this book. The whole reason that I wanted to write the little book of aliens was because I wanted people, after all that time, I wanted people to see how close we are scientifically to answering that question that we actually through you know, telescopes like the James Webb in the next 10, 20, 30 years, we are going to have some kind of answer or at least data relevant to that, that question. So, you know, I've been in, I've been doing astronomy forever. I've been interested in life in the universe, I've been, you know, as well as the physics of life, just in general, what is life, which is a strange question. Um, yeah. So all of that has been my professional interest for a long, long time.
0: Excellent. There's a quote, I was going to see if I could find it for you here, because I know I have it somewhere in my images. But, um, but I know you're, I'm sure you're familiar with it. And uh, here it is right here. And it's, you know, the Arthur C. Clarke, uh, you know, the two possibilities exist, either we are alone in the universe, or we are not both are equally terrifying. And uh, yeah, yeah.
1: I wouldn't say terrifying, though. I think exciting in one way or the other or compelling or yeah. philosophically, um, uh, you know, rich and vibrant with huge co- consequential for sure. But, um, I, you know, I wouldn't see either of them. I mean, certainly finding life, I don't think would be terrifying. Maybe being alone. If we were truly the only place in the galaxy or even the universe itself where there was life, that is a little freaky. Um, and it is possible. Yeah. I got to say, you know, even though there's all those stars. I'm familiar enough, you know, with all the things that go on that there is a possibility that's true. I don't think so. I don't, you know, I'm an I'm an alien optimist, but um but there is a route <laughs> that that's possible. And so that would be that would be strange if we were the only time life ever started.
0: Well, you know, it, it's to me it feels like it I know we don't have we don't have solid evidence, but it feels like it would be impossible that there wouldn't be only because of how life can survive in the harshest of places, you know, th- the, that they find it. And, you know, on the bottom of the ocean or, you know, I mean, where no sunlight ever gets and, you know, things like that, you know, I don't know how they get their energy. I don't even know how any of that works, but it's just like life. It wants to be here really bad. And um, I, I believe it has to be a universal thing. It's just, how does it start? That's always the question.
1: Yeah. But, you know, this is the, this is what I love about science is that, my, I have the same bias. I have the same bias, especially microbial life. Because if you look at the history of the Earth, the Earth you know, forms about 4.5 four billion years ago. By about 4 billion years or so, the crust, uh, the magma ocean, as we call it, which eventually forms a crust, cools to the point where you're starting to have the possibility for life. And by 3.8 billion years ago, we have kind of we believe that life is formed. So it's almost like as soon as the planet was ready for life, life formed. So, you know, that kind of implies life is easy to make. But on the other hand, you know, it is getting life to start like exactly what happened, you know, again, like, we have these biases that are kind of hunches. But you know, when you start doing the science, you also find there are ways in which it may be really like, you may need very, very, very special conditions, you know, in order to get it started. And that's the real mystery. Because You know, you can see from the science that there are a lot of special conditions, a lot of accidents that are required. Earth is very special compared to other planets. So it's you know, we just don't know. And that's what's interesting. And that's what makes the science of this so interesting right now.
0: Right. And, uh, you know, even if there it was like a panspermia type situation where we were, you know, it came through our atmosphere or uh, a meteorite or whatever it is, even if it was that it had to start somewhere. You know, and the the very first spark of life to me is is a fascinating how that how that all like you said, all the accidents seem to have had to have happened exactly that way. You know, uh, you know, someday, do you think it's possible that they can create life in a lab?
1: Well, there's you know, I'm actually involved. We have a grant from the um, Templeton Foundation to study. Like what makes really what we're focusing on is the physics of life. What makes life as a physical system different from, you know, a bag of chemicals, right? Uh, and so part of that community, I'm getting used to that research community. There's the, what's called a life, artificial life. So there are people who are working very hard to kind of assemble the, you know, the, the what you need for life from basic constituents. I think that's possible. I don't know, you know, people like, I was just reading a paper the other day, which was like 20 years ago and they're like very soon, we're gonna have it. And that's it's like 20 bad. years later, it's like, oh, well that didn't work out. So, um, yeah. but in the book, you know, I have a whole chapter on uh, abiogenesis So this question of how to go from not a bunch of non-living stuff and then have it like rattle around in a warm pond or something and get that first replicator, get that first chemical replicator that has some information encoded in it to allow the next version of it to form and maybe with some mutations so it's better even at replicating um that's a really you know we have made a lot of progress on that and particularly in the 1950s the famous um uh, miller uray experiment where they first showed that with the basic building blocks uh, the basic kind of environment of the earth you could get Kind of almost everything you needed to get life started. So a lot of great research, but we still don't have. We can't still can't cross that divide from non-life to life.
0: Right, right. Well, first of all, I do want to say, I do want to thank you as someone of your stature and a scientist for coming on a show about UFOs. <laughs> I thank you for that. Um, and so obviously, people probably want to know and. I understand, uh, you know, most people are skeptic. Most scientists are skeptic, uh, but I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I think skepticism is healthy um, in all counts. Uh, I personally, you know, think that there's definitely something going on where something is coming into our atmosphere that doesn't make any sense in a lot of ways. And I think we may know more. But in general, have you had a semi open mind to the possibility that we could be visited? Yeah, you know, Listen, I'm a scientist and I'm interested in aliens. I have, you know, I'm a very
1: open mind, but I'm a scientist, which means this is the thing people have to understand about science. This we are scientists are very mean to each other. <laughs> like, I mean, really, you know, <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah, the link between a piece of evidence and a claim that you want to make about that evidence. We are absolutely brutal about what we demand in in making that link. Right, um, you know, and so we'll tear each other apart. Somebody comes with like, oh, you know, I've got this rock, and I think it, you know, has this to do with the formation of the Earth. Um, I so I have a theory of the formation of the of the Earth, and this rock proves it. We will go at each other, tooth and nail, you know, about whether that claim is true, and we'll pull it apart. And and you know, the reason people will say like, well, you know, scientists. They're, you know they shouldn't be that way or they're they're overbearing on it but this is why the cell phone works like if we worry or this is why your aunt's uh, hip replacement surgery didn't kill her right that demand it's about standards of evidence it's about we have very very rigorous standards of evidence uh, linking data or evidence you know linking data to a claim about it um and so that like well I'm totally open-minded I also demand that kind of link um and you know the thing is my work so i work in what's called techno signatures i'm sure we'll talk about it i am part of a community that is looking for evidence of life on alien planets alien life on alien planets where you know i think that's where it's going to be um and if i made a claim if i came out and said look using the james webb space telescope here's the data we have that we think proves that there is a, a bio an alien biosphere on planet xyz i expect my colleagues are coming at me, man, with their knives out, you know. And yep. so for the UFO, for UFOs, it's the same thing. UFOs don't get a pass, right? Because it's UFOs. And so my skepticism about UFOs is what I would say is at this point there just is not that kind of data that would link UFOs to anything otherworldly. But so I'm sure people may be unhappy about that. And you know, in the book, I try and I really try and show people what that means, why as a why most scientists are coming at it that way. But I am all in favor. I am completely in favor of an open, transparent, scientific investigation of the UAP UFO phenomena. And, you know, i the beautiful thing about science is it, it teaches you how to change your mind, right? If mm. the data go that way, if that rigorous, super high standards of evidence, if that's where that data takes you, I'm good, you know, because... I cool. want there to be aliens. I don't care where they are. I want to find them. yeah. so you know I'm, I'm super skeptical about what the data exists. I don't think there's any data that's really of the standards I need. Um, but let's let's go look you know let's let's have
0: that. Well, you know've I've, you hear the term that astronomy is all observational. you know what I mean but but the difference I would say between people observing and witnessing and radar and all that a UFO and in astronomy observing something, is that it's not fleeting for the most part. Whatever it is, you can observe it, and you can, you know, it, it's it's something you can, you know, document. So I guess that would be, you know, the difference between the observation when they say it's an observational science. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Is that kind well, of it's also a theoretical what science? Like one of the one of I had
1: a one of the great uh, Michael Turner, one of the great particle physicists of the last generation. Um, he's not dead, so he'd probably be pissed off if I said that. But you know, one of the great <laughs> particle physicists of the of the 20th yeah. century um, once said to me, you know, in a good theory, uh, you know, a good scientific account of things, you put a quarter in and you get a dollar out, right? And so anything that you do has to like lead somewhere. Like you know, the amazing thing about science is like, I discover something, and like then I'm like, oh my god, I've seen something totally new, and then like 20 minutes later, I turn that. Into a tool for discovering the next thing, so that's what people have to ask. Like you know, observational, fleeting, whatever. The question is, have you discovered something in a way that now lets you ask the next question? Um, Mm. And you know, Mm. like I said, I have a whole chapter in the book where I detail what a scientific investigation of a of UAPs would look like, such that you'd be able to take the next step. If you actually say, for example. Uh, you you know you you went through what I was uh, asking for, and you found that like wow we have to, we we are get very clear evidence from multiple detectors with multiple wavelengths. Um, that that thing just made that thing we were looking at made a right hand turn at Mach 500, right? Yeah. Like okay, <laughs> not we don't have any technology that can make a right hand turn at Mach 500. But the great thing is, what would you do next? Well, these uh, what you built these array of detectors would let you ask the next question. Right. Which is like, okay. well, is there anything we can say about the thing itself? Is there anything we can probe about the data or take new data that lets us ask, what is it made out of? Right. You Mm -hmm. know, or, you know, what is its reflectivity? How does it, you know, um, in different wavelengths, did it reflect the same amount of wavelengths of light in infrared and in radio? So, you know, whatever you do, if you want to know something. There's there are these sort of like there's the way you set up the investigation. So it keeps leading you down the road and you learn something and then you learn something else and then you learn something else. And that is what a a true investigation of anything, but particularly UFOs and UAPs would look like, because that's what we're doing with the telescopes for the alien worlds.
0: You know, uh, when I first started the show and really until 2017, the end of uh, 2017, when the New York Times article came about out about the Pentagon, you know, looking into UFOs, there was no one in the scientific community very, very few that wanted to take a look at UAP, as they call them now, or UFOs, um, because of, first of all, the stigma. stigma and secondly, that there is no funding. You can't fund something. You know, there's no end. There's no means to an end. So, how can yeah. you get funding for something where there's no real means to an end for something that's fleeting, something that's not repeatable? But now I've seen a big turn where uh, there are scientists now that are, you know that uh, you know, I spoke to one who said, "I want to be here on the ground floor, you know, and when this whole thing breaks, uh, you know, because really, truly, you have to agree, I'm sure you do. I, I think it's one of the most important things that there is that we could possibly discover is alien and possibly intelligent life um, other oh, than yeah. ours besides yeah, no, no, um, I, you know, what happens after you die you know i mean what are the big the big questions
1: yeah uh, that's why you know i opened the book with that that like this question of uh, of is there life in the universe is exactly like the question what happens after you die because you know, everybody's got an opinion. Um, nobody knows anything, and uh, the answer would change the world, right? Would change, would literally yeah. change our understanding of the world. So, you know, and 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 the, this question of of life in the universe is old. I mean, you can see the Greeks uh, arguing about this two thousand five hundred years ago, and so that's why the first part of the book I try and run through the history. And whether you're interested in UFOs or you know the the, the use of tele- scientific use of telescopes. Knowing this history is really important because our ideas about alien life were handed to us from this long history of people uh, arguing about it, occasionally setting each other on fire, you know, the story of Giordano (laughs) Bruno. Um, So it's really Mm. important to understand that history. But it's important just to know that, like, this is one of the oldest uh, questions uh, human beings have ever asked. And it's only now, like, literally, it's only in the last 20 years or so, that 30 years that we have... The scientifically, because that's what most of the book is about. It's about what we can do with the telescopes that we finally have the ability to answer that question. We finally have the capacity to look at alien worlds, which is where I think aliens are going to be, you know, and 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 find signatures of life, either dumb life. I you know I, I, I always want to apologize to microbes when I say that, you know, <laughs> bi, you know biospheres, can't help forests, yeah. yeah, microbes. Um, so either you know dumb life or smart life. We have finally, finally, the ability to search the universe, search the galaxy for evidence of life. And so that's the most exciting, this is such an exciting moment for us.
0: Really? And can you explain what a tech, how a techno signature can, I understand that it's through light signatures of some type of chemical signatures and things like that. Can you explain how these telescopes like the James Webb, uh, will actually be able to distinguish what a techno signature is.
1: Yeah. So actually let's talk about both biosignatures and techno signatures because really they're they're the it's the same thing. It's just, you know, what you're detecting is gonna be different. But you should really lump up they're 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 evidence of life. You know, one mm-hmm. way or the other. So what has happened, so there's there's been a bunch of revolutions. There's been three distinct revolutions in, in astrobiology, the study of life in the universe, over the last 30 years. The first was the discovery of other planets orbiting other stars, right? Until 1995, we didn't know whether there were any planets other than the eight uh, in our solar system. Don't get started with me about Pluto. Okay. (laughs) Um, uh, so, you know, and then start, I know, I know. Um, in 1995, we discovered our first planet orbiting another star. And now we know that every planet, I mean, every star, every star you see in the sky hosts a family of worlds. Okay. Uh, so that was revolution. Number one revolution. Number two was actually landing on all of the different or visiting all of the different planets in our own solar system, which taught us how planets work taught us about planetary climate as a general phenomena, um, taught us about the changes that can happen in a planet. And then the third revolution was understanding Earth's own history, all the way back, um, you know, Earth and life, understanding the paired evolution of Earth and life going back three and a half billion years. Because that last one, what we've learned is, is that when life forms, it takes over a planet, it completely changes the planet's history. Life is not some kind of passive scrub sitting on the surface it literally is a dynamo that completely takes over the planet and if you want an example of that just take a deep breath all that oxygen the only reason the oxygen is in the atmosphere is because of life 2.5 billion years ago life invented a new form of photosynthesis that belched out oxygen and that is why there is oxygen in the atmosphere if life disappeared that oxygen would quickly react away uh, and disappear so what that means is that oxygen. As an example, if you could look at a, a, a an alien planet and detect the signature in its atmosphere of oxygen, you will have found evidence of that life on that planet. The, the the atmosphere, the atmosphere constituents becomes a life detector. So, how do we find that? How do we do that? One of the main ways we find exoplanets is what's called the transit method. So we you know we're looking at a star. And we just sit and we stare at that star for a while. And eventually, if everything lines up, a planet passes between, uh, You know, if a planet is orbiting the star, the planet passes between us and the star. And it creates a little eclipse, like a micro eclipse. You know, for a little bit, we see the the light of the star dim slightly in a, in a very special way, and then come back as the planet passes in front of it. So that, when we see that, we're like, boom, we just discovered a, a, an exoplanet. But if the planet has an atmosphere, then a veil of gas surrounding it, then when the planet passes in front of the star, there's a a brief period of time where the starlight passes, doesn't get obstructed, doesn't get blotted out. It actually passes through the planet's atmosphere. And as it makes that trip through the atmosphere, it interacts with the chemicals in the atmosphere and leaves a fingerprint in the light. And when that light gets to us, we can kind of unpack it and see like, oh, oxygen, carbon dioxide, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And so the the um the, the a biosignature is something like the the fingerprint of oxygen or dimethyl sulfide, which is a chemical that only the plankton puts into the air. Okay. So you discovered anything like that? Oxygen, dimethyl sulfide, other things. You have found a biosignature. Now, if the planet has a civilization on it, all of its technology, the sum total of its technology, you can call it the technosphere. Right. On Earth, we've got satellites orbiting. We've got the uh, uh, at night, the uh, artificial illumination, like the night side of the planet is entirely lit up. The atmosphere is full of chemicals that we put there inadvertently. So, for example, let's take one of those chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs. CFCs are an industrial chemical that we used for air conditioning and spray cans. And uh, a lot of it escaped into the air. And it turns out that was the stuff that was eating the ozone layer. Right. So we had to ban it. Right. But those it turns out those chlorofluorocarbons also, if you if a planet, a distant planet had it in its atmosphere, either because of pollution or somebody put it there on purpose. And we can talk about why um, you'd be able to see that. But, you know, when when you do, we wrote a paper showing um, how uh, that uh, a distant planet, 40 light years away, if you looked at it with the James Webb Space Telescope, you could, in principle, detect the fingerprint of chlorofluorocarbons. And because there's no way that nature makes chlorofluorocarbons, that requires an industrial process. You see that, you know there's a technosphere there. So chlorofluorocarbons are a techno signature. Uh, artificial light, you know, we can actually see the signature of artificial illumination in the light from a planet. So that's a techno signature. Uh, if the, if a civilization uses solar panels of any kind, any kind of solar, any kind of solar collector, that also leaves an imprint in the reflected light off the planet that you could see from a distance. Hmm. So, you know, um, I am the principal investigator on NASA's first grant to study atmospheric technosignatures. And so what we've been doing is, you know, kind of going through the list, writing scientific papers, investigating which are the best technosignatures. What should we use JWST or the telescopes that follow it to look for?
0: Right. And I'm sure uh, the time use, and if you you write a paper or whatever, and you get like, uh, okay, you get an authorization to look at this certain area of space is, I'm just guessing. Um, Yeah. But I'm sure the time is very valuable on the, the web, for instance. So you have to, before you even start, you have to know what you're going to look for, I imagine. And like right now, if the James Webb wanted to, could it? Look at a planet and see this, or is this something that you have to build up to and, and make make it a working thing before you can even aim the telescope?
1: Well, you know, the grants are what we explicitly said we were going to do in the grant is we were going to build a library of techno signatures. We were going to build a library of the actual spectral fingerprints that spectral. Uh, you know someone ICD. could use, yep. someone could use mm-hmm. the JWST to look for. Now, what we showed in that first paper was, you know, we, we what, what we did is we, we took a, a mathematical model of a planet, put CFCs in it, watched how the climate change, because one of the things, as I said, you might put CFCs in an atmosphere purposely because they're great greenhouse gases. So if you wanted to terraform Mars, for example, if you wanted to warm Mars up, because it's very cold right now, you know, and so yeah. that people could live there, you probably, CFCs would be a great example. They are better greenhouse gases than CO2. So um, so what we showed was that, so, okay, so we, we made a mathematical model of a planet. We put CFCs in it. We let the climate, we watched how the climate evolved. And then we used a kind of mathematical model of the JWST and observed it. We simulated observing that planet from 40 light years away. And we found that the JWST could see it it would be able to detect it at earth-like levels or even you know two times it gets better ba- you know two times the level ten times the level gets even better so we've taken the first step now if we wanted to actually ask for jwst time we'd have to write a proposal you know yeah. and we'd have to then go and again this is this idea of standards of evidence that we would have to because the, the the telescope time is so Valuable and everybody yes. wants it. Every hour yes. of telescope time, there's 10,000 people who want um, We oh, have to God. really make a convincing case that, uh, that it's detectable. That, yeah, no, there's because they're not going to give you time if they're sort of like, well, maybe it might work. They're only going to give you time if you can show that if it's there, you'll see it. And we haven't gotten quite to that level yet, but we're working there. Like, we're these techno signature studies. We're the first, you <laughs> know. Nobody's done it before because there was never any funding for it before. So you know, the game is just getting started now. The biosignature stuff is mature. People, there's, there's been, you know, uh, two decades of really detailed uh, theoretical work and uh, you know, getting us ready for biosignatures. And the JWST is, I mean, it's at the hairy edge of maybe being able to see it. But it's already getting data that is relevant to this question. Just recently, a few weeks ago or a month ago, it had some data looking at a new type of habitable planet. um, And they didn't see, you know, it's not good enough to see a a biosignature, but it saw other chemicals, very clear um, uh, uh, evidence of chemicals in the atmosphere that were important for us to find on the way to getting a biosignature.
0: Very interesting. Now, you, you mentioned Mars. Uh, could that ever be habitable without a magnetosphere?
1: Uh, you know, Mars. Here's the amazing thing: four billion years ago, the Red Planet was blue. Right? We have now con- conclusive evidence that the um, uh, Mars was a blue world. There was there were either you know large lakes or actually oceans on Mars. You know, there was water, knee deep water rushing over you know over rocks. So Mars was a Mars. That means Mars must have had a thicker atmosphere that could and it was warmer. It was warm enough to have liquid water on it and to keep the liquid water on it. So um, it's absolutely true that four billion years ago, Mars was habitable. Now, you know, did life form then? We don't know. You know, it's possible that life formed on Mars. And then, as you say, panspermia, that a meteor impact blew a chunk of Mars with some uh, microbes in it to Earth. Uh, but that's a really open question. And until we get boots on the ground on Mars, you know, where we can really dig into the soil and look for fossil evidence of microbes or or existing microbes now, we just don't know the answer. But it's a very exciting question.
0: Well, you know, I I would think the latest rover that landed there didn't – isn't that all set up to find microbial life and, you know, take samples and study it and all that?
1: It is. It is. It is. It is. But it's, again, you know – that's a first step, right? You know, it's a hostile environment. What you, I think, you know, it's going to take, what it's doing is it's running along and it's digging up, taking samples and leaving them there for another mission to come pick them up. Um, it's kind of pooping them out in a weird way. <laughs> um, I didn't know so that. it's no. really, it's not, it's not a life detection experiment yet. And I also think that these rovers can do a lot, but really, if you want to answer this question, you got to have people on Mars. So I really, let's get people on Mars and let's start the science.
0: Yeah. But, you know, uh, but the radiation issue, do you think they'll ever overcome that? You know,
1: to- that is a real that's a real issue. You know, there's a new book out, uh, even though everybody should buy my book, <laughs> the, the Little Book of Aliens. There's a new book out called The City on Mars, which I want to get where they that's the, a, a two authors and they look at this in detail, all of the problems. And probably, um, you know, in the beginning, your all your all your uh, habitats are going to have to be under either buried or underground. Um, and so, you know, people yeah. have talked about ways of like making artificial magnetic fields and such, but that's kind of really science fiction. Now, maybe in two, you know, I'm a firm believer that in 200, 300 years, we will have, if we don't kill ourselves from a nuclear war, climate change or AI, um, we will yeah. have millions or billions of people in space. We will inhabit every nook and cranny in the solar system. I believe that's our, our destiny, you know, uh, mm-hmm. as human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, uh, there's going to be steps along the way. And maybe, you know, it may make more sense. We wrote a paper recently that showed taking asteroids and spinning them up, hollowing them out and spinning them up. So people have like artificial gravity from the spin on the inside. Wow. That may be a much better way than dropping down a gravity well. To uh, So maybe like in the future we have, you know, thousand there's a lot of asteroids out there. We have you know a billion people living on rotating you know many many rotating space cities.
0: Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's hard to even fathom how something like that could be all set up with all you need to live. You know all the, the supplies of water and food and you know sustainable and all that. But yeah, interesting concepts.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's I don't you know I mean again there's no there's no it's not like any advances in physics like getting from here to the next star. Or, you know, traveling faster than the speed of light, there, that's science fiction, right? We don't know how to do that. We don't even know if it's possible. But building rotating space habitats is an extrapolation from the physics we have now. So it's, you know, 300 years from now, I could, listen to this. Think about this. 200 years ago, nobody had traveled faster than like 40 miles an hour, which is as fast as you can go yeah. on a horse, <laughs> unless you were falling <laughs> you to your crawling. death from a cliff. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. So, and now, you know, we're all, we you know, we travel at 500 miles an hour, five miles in the sky, and we're like, yeah, whatever. So, you know, yeah. the idea that 300 years from now we have rotating space cities is not, I don't think that's a huge stretch.
0: Yeah, I remember uh, reading somewhere where, like, I forget how many hundreds of years ago, but they had a theory that if you moved faster than 60 miles an hour, you would die. Your heart would stop. Right. And uh, yeah, yeah I, I guess if you're falling off a, a building at 60 miles an hour, that's true. Um, so this uh, this is a question someone posted in, in the chat, and I've I've heard people talk about this before. Uh, would ever would anything like that ever make any sense? Uh, and that question from Stephen is, uh, what about a space elevator?
1: I want space elevators. Where's my space <laughs> elevator? I love space elevators. Space elevators are the key, right um, now. It's a very, it's a huge technological challenge. Uh, but yeah. you know, any fan of Arthur C. Clarke, who's read, you know, that he wrote a great book, a real law. It must have been the seventies about space elevators. Um, so here's the, you know, what, so what is a space elevator? The idea is, you know, rather than have to use huge rockets to blast yourself into orbit, you have basically a cable running from orbit down to the Earth, and then you have like cars that climb up the cable. And that's how you get stuff into space. Now, the problem is in order for this to work, the cable can't just be out, you know, 100 miles up. The cable has to actually have a counterweight that goes way out to like 36, I'm not exactly sure how far it is, but like kind of a geosynchronous orbit or even past it in order to keep the table taut so it doesn't just drop down, right? Um, In orbit, you know, have to be moving pretty fast in order for them to stay in orbit. So if you want something that just sits in front of, it just sits over one place. That's geosynchronous orbit. And then you actually have to have a counterweight so that it stays taut. So you actually need something. So you need a cable that is lightweight and strong enough uh, and can go out more than 36,000 miles. So, you know, that's a little pushing it. But uh, people talk about carbon fibers, carbon nanowires as being a possibility for this because we know we can make those super strong. We just can't make a lot of them. But again, 300 years from now, that's, an, that's totally a possibility. And then, you know, you could just move stuff up and down through orbit. and be no problem.
0: You know, one of the things uh, when I've talked to a lot of people um, on the show that are either astronomers or kind of in the field of what you, you do, uh, you know, they, they bring up the fact that uh, physics is uh, the physics that we know currently, um, you know, it's impossible for us. And I understand the vastness. I, I have a, a Jeffrey Bennett, who you said you know, uh, you know, made an example. If the this is a very good thing to go by. If the I want to get it right though. <laughs> if the sun was the size of, I think he said a basketball, and it was in Maryland, in Washington D.C., and the Earth would be the size of a ballpoint on a ballpoint pen and the first star would be in San Francisco. Yeah, That's kind of that, how that's... he was talking about the distances. And so right. I understand the distances are vast, but um, do you think it's possible that there is some type of physics that has been learned by a high intelligence and in how to travel space faster than the speed of light? Do you think it's well possibility?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I mean, one of the most fun chapters of the book was I went through all the ways that, you know, we can imagine that you could get from one star to the other, including first the conventional ways. We know, let's imagine that the speed of light is actually the limit that right now we know it to be. You know, what can you do? What kinds of mechanisms do you have? And then let's extrapolate from the physics that we have. And see where you can go. Because, you know, the important thing about this, especially, you know, if you're thinking about, people want to think about UFOs, is you can't just wave your hands and say, well, they have advanced technology, they can do anything, right? Aliens aren't magic, right? They, you know, the universe can be explained by science. So they live in the same universe we do. So it's absolutely possible that they have science that we don't understand. Of course, that's possible. Yeah. But here's the important thing. Any science that's more advanced than our science still has to sit on top of our science. So take, for example, Newtonian gravity, right? Newton comes up with his description of gravity. It lasts 300 years. And then Einstein comes along and says, no, no, no. You know, it's not forces. Gravity is actually the shape of space and time, right? But it's not like everyone said, well, that's it. Newton's done. What Einstein had to show was that his theory, his more advanced theory, explained and captured everything that Newton had already shown to be true. I see. So... Mm -hmm. So any new kind of physics that involves moving faster than the speed of light has to still sit on and recover all the physics and that we know is true and we know quite a bit, right? So that means you have to extrapolate intelligently. You have to use your imagination constrained with what we already know about the universe to try and move forward. And so like uh, in in the book, as I say, there's There's like trying to use Einstein's theory of relativity to to imagine how to to go faster than the speed of light, which really means you're not going faster than the speed of light, you're warping space, right? So general relativity allows the possibility for you to take distant places in space and time and fold them together, jump from Mm -hmm. one to the other, and then unfold, right? That is Mm -hmm. a theoretical possibility. There's also wormholes, which play the same sort of role. You know, warp drives... There's also warp drives, which are kind of a bubble of uh, that move a bubble of space time that moves through space time at whatever damn speed it wants. But here's the problem: so these are all theoretical possibilities. You can show in the mathematics they're possible, but the only way you can show the only way it works is you got to add this thing called exotic matter, which doesn't exist, right? At least. You know, it's basically you just say like, oh, I take the equation and I'm going to add a plus sign right there with a one that doesn't, you know, and I just made it up. And then you can get the equations to do what you want. But there's no, you know, it's just purely theory. There's no, there's, we, we've never seen anything like exotic matter. You know, it's just something we invented. So, you know, if there was exotic matter, then yes, maybe you could have faster than light uh, travel in that kind of way. So uh, but that- I think it's important. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Finish it. I just think it's important and i also talk about quantum mechanics and quantum mechanics is the theory of the very small and it's it's the most amazing theory in physics it's the most powerful theory we've ever developed and really nobody understands it and what i mean by that nobody understands what it's telling us about the the, about about reality and there's enough in there that maybe you know you can kind of wave your hands a little bit and say like there's something in quantum mechanics that would allow you to appear you know, from, you know, disappear in one place and reappear somewhere else. You know, I'm just, again, I'm, I'm writing a science fiction story, but that's kind of what you you have to do if you want to take it seriously, as opposed to just being like, Oh, they can do whatever they want.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I've heard people say, well, you know, they're here so you can reverse engineer how they got here, but they're here. You know, I've you know, I mean, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, uh, you, you know uh, what to say about that as far as, I know as far as the scientific mind needing any evidence, I, I, I totally understand that. I would like to ask you how you think an intelligence, uh, not going, maybe going off the human model, but what do you think the development of intelligent life could possibly be altered by an, in an evolution?
1: Yeah, well, that, oh God, that's fascinating. So the last part of the book, I really engaged with the evolutionary literature. I really was looking deeply in that to try and answer that question because we know a lot about evolution and no matter, you know, anything, whether the life is based on carbon or silicon or whatever, you know, we have some general definitions. Anything we call life is going to have certain properties um, or certain behaviors and evolution is one of them. Darwinian evolution is kind of more a logic than a theory. And anything that's alive is going to follow this logic. It's just that's kind of what it means to be alive. And so when you track evolution and, and uh, intelligence, what you see is, you know, our cognitive structure, the cognitive structure that we have, the way our minds work, is really just like one teeny tiny sliver of the possibilities out there. And So this is why the chapter was so much fun to write. You know, and it's possible... Um, you know, as Wittgenstein said, that if a lion could talk, you wouldn't understand what it said, right? That, that alien minds could be so different that mm. they were not, we're barely living in the same world. Um, one of my favorite movies, and everybody should watch it, is Arrival. I don't know if you've ever seen Arrival. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So good, right? And what I love about that, so Carl Sagan had this idea that like, oh, you know, everybody's going to have the same mathematics, um, so therefore, you know, we just meet with the aliens, and we'll show them how we write the you know equation for a circle, and they'll show us how they do it. And you know, pretty soon we'll be swapping knock knock, knock, knock jokes and you know cures for cancer. And in the movie, they said, you know these aliens arrive, and it's really really cool looking aliens too, not not humanoid at all. Um, and they send in a linguist and a Carl Sagan physicist, and the Carl Sagan physicist fails immediately and spectacularly, and it's the the, the linguist who understands that language is not some kind of logical structure. It's embodied. It's about living in a body in the world. She breaks through, and what she finds is they, they are kind of living in a different world. They experience the past, present, and future at the same time. So they literally almost hmm. have a different physics, in a way, that they're, that they're moving through. And I just thought that movie was such a beautiful example uh, and, and a, a, a warning to us that we should be so careful about not anthropomorphizing you know life on other planets because the directions it can take are so there's so many wild possibilities that it'll be anything like us especially like humanoid i would argue i would argue that we're the only humanoids in the whole universe um because you know while legs and arms might make sense There's so many accidents, like almost an infinite number of accidents that led to our body plans that I don't see how you would recover all those accidents uh, anywhere else. And Stephen Jay Gould, the great evolutionary biologist, said if you were to take Earth, you start over again, run the tape backwards and start evolution again. You wouldn't find a single creature on Earth that looked like any of the species that that are around today. And so I think that, that that's true. We have to really be open minded when we think about how creative life uh, is going to be in, in the forms it takes.
0: So what are some of the things that form uh, where we go in an evolution, if it would be different? Um, you know, if you, you're talking about being on the same planet, the same development of earth, the same gravity and all that, I don't understand particularly how it could be that much different. Um, so I'm just curious, his theory, his theory came up with that would be totally different?
1: Well, so what you know, you certainly so evolution is a battle between convergence uh, and contingency. So convergence is the idea that you will get, uh, you know, physics and chemistry will the, the laws of physics and chemistry sort of mean that life has faces the same problems over and over again and will choose will will evolve similar solutions to those problems. So, for example, wings, you look at Earth and you see that wings have evolved on three very different evolutionary lineages. There's bats, which are mammals, there's birds, and then there's insects, right? So they all evolved wings, right? But their wings are very, very different. Um, So, you know, uh, uh, legs, for example, like you can expect if you've got to walk along a surface, you'll invent some version of sticks with joints on them. But the idea is that every insect, the form of every insect, the form of of a bat, the form of, actually really depended on the accidents, millions and millions of accidents to get anything with, say, like the um, uh, bipedal symmetry, right? That I de- or, or not bipedal, you know, the, the bilateral symmetry. Uh, most of life, much of life has bilateral symmetry. It doesn't have bilateral symmetry because bilateral symmetry makes some kind of cosmic sense. It's because early on... That was, there was an accidental, you know, mutations are always accidents. There was an accidental mutation that led to bilateral symmetry and that preserved evolution is conservative. If something, if it makes something, the next generation is going to have a version of that and so on and so on. You could have easily got, if evolution, if it had been one or two different accidents, you might've had quadrilateral symmetry because that's totally reasonable too. And so, you know, when a rock fall, some rock, random rock falling on some, quadrilateral creature wait, you know, 3 million years ago, if that hadn't happened, if that accident hadn't happened, we'd all be quadrilateral. We would all have four arms, you know, maybe in different places that had eight joints on them. So it's that the actual form you take, um, you can expect arms, you can expect, le- or you can expect sticks, jointed sticks. You can expect, uh, sur- curved surfaces that, um, allow you to that produce lifts. So you can fly, but the actual forms are going to take, those are accidents, and they, if you ran the tape of life again, you would have wings, you would have, you know, uh, sticks, but they wouldn't look anything like what we what the the creatures we have today.
0: Isn't that something? This is uh, someone posting here. Uh, Dirk is saying our DNA is DNA is loaded with random change, often from viruses. That's uh, that's interesting. Is I've never never thought of that or heard of that before. Is is that something you're aware of?
1: I'm vaguely aware of it. You know, I mean, the important thing is is that the DNA is mutating all the time, right? So the 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 two important um, things, you know, as I just des- described, this was sort of a you know interesting part in the book of seeing like what when I talked about this logic of life. So I, I should you know tried to show people how this works. The two things that are important about life is one, um, uh, survival of the fittest, as we all know. You know, if the environment changes, whoever is best adapted to that environment wins in terms of reproduction um after um uh uh the the other part is um descent with modification meaning mutation right so yeah whether it's through the viruses you know adding randomly collecting new viruses life changes its form and so when you add those two together that's where you get this sort of the, the importance of accidents that because life is constantly changing its form the environment is constantly changing so you're always trying to be the best adapted to the environment, it means that you're gonna get accidents being like one of the most important uh, features of life. And that's why you just won't reproduce the same bodily forms if you run the tape of life again, or you start on an entirely different planet.
0: All right, now I'm gonna ask you uh, a question that most scientists wouldn't like me to ask. <laughs> is their opinion. Um, how, how would you feel if you learned that you must have heard that, you know, the claims out there, the whistleblower claims that there's a crash, you know, UFOs uh, in our possession in the government. And how would you feel if there was some part of the government that actually knew there was entities and was hiding it from the American public, let's just say in America alone? I'm just asking for what would that make you feel like as a scientist if you found out, hey, they knew their biological entities were, you know, wherever they came from. I don't even know where they come from, but let's just say that they actually had these in their possession. Would that, would that disturb you that we've been hidden, that was hidden from, you know, the science community?
1: Well, first of all, I'm not going to believe it until you show, until, until I, you know, like oh, tell me, yeah. me the spaceship. You know, yep. listen, I, 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 the fact that the government hid it for for 30 years, I, as long as show me the spaceship, all I care about is the spaceship. You know, all I yeah. care about is actually seeing the spaceship, you know, whatever. Go, you know, or go put those people in jail or whatever. I don't care. It's the spaceship that matters. <laughs> I would be so psyched to have yeah. an actual factual spaceship that I wouldn't I, like I'd instantly forget everything else that happened. So, you know, just I, show me the spaceship until then. You know, for me, it's just, it's more stories, you know, but when it's show me the spaceship, I'm, I'm there. Show you, know, that, that I can give me a spaceship that I can actually take to a lab, you know, do all the analysis of. And that, if that yeah. turns out to be non-human, you know, from other, my God, this is, you know, I'd be stoked. I'd be totally, again, you know, the beautiful thing about science is it shows you how, it shows you how to change your mind. It shows you how to honestly, you know, without shame, yeah. I've changed my, I've had to change my mind number of times in science. There's no there's no dishonor if you have those standards of evidence to 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 show you that it's time to have a new opinion.
0: Yes, I I I think that is, it should be like that way in other parts of life as well when you know the facts are shown. But thank yep. you so much Adam. It's been a real pleasure and I hope you come back on the show. I could uh, definitely talk to you a lot longer. Thank you so much. And thank the you. book this is a lot called A I Little really Book of it. Aliens. The little book of aliens. It's in the in the link down below. Thanks very much. Okay. All right. Take take care. care. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. All right, everyone. So next week we'll be back with Kevin Wright, but also right now we're going over to the next stream, which is uh, with Daniel Sheehan, attorney Daniel Sheehan, and also later this week on Thursday um, we are going to do the. UAP Crossfire. I'll be hosting that this week. And that's it. We'll see you over at the next stream.